seems really weird uh, talking about the church on a day like today when the church isn't gathered, but this is also maybe good as well. This is, this is going to be a good time to really ask some questions about what the church is, what the church does, why we exist, and all those things. We are wrapping up a series uh, that both Pastor Kyle and Pastor Matt have been a part of um, about our new hearts uh, for the new year. And so this morning we're talking about a new ecclesiastical heart. Now it's a big word and you don't really need to remember the word necessarily, but we'll kind of draw out what that word um, ecclesia or that word ecclesiastical really means. I was with my wife and kids um, in downtown Des Moines and we had just finished eating at a restaurant And we had gone back to the parking garage, and we drove down the parking garage, and we came to the kiosk where you pay to leave the parking garage. And so after inserting my card to my my bank card to pay for our parking, uh, the gate wouldn't open. And so I tried time and time again. I kept trying, put in my card, I took it out, and it, it wouldn't go through, and the gate wouldn't open. And so I tried and tried and tried and was getting frustrated until I realized that the place I was putting my card was actually the place where you're supposed to put the parking garage ticket. And it wasn't working. The place where you put your bank card to pay for the parking was actually right next to it. And uh, I, had, I was getting so frustrated and and my wife and kids, uh, you know, still give me a hard time about it to this day. But no matter how, time, how many times I swiped that card, it wasn't going to work. You know, I think when it comes to the church, sometimes we complicate things. Um, I wonder, too, if, if maybe you, even myself, as I've thought about the church, if trying to figure this thing out, what is the church? What are we supposed to be doing How are we supposed to be acting? What's church membership? Why are there so many different things going on within a church and so many differences amongst all the churches? How come one church says you should do things this way and another church says you should do something this way? It's just, and we can get real complicated and we can can go to the wrong place for answers. We can stick our bank card, so to speak, in the wrong place and we're not going to get the results we want. When it comes to the doctrine of the church, it's common for people to brush it off as too confusing. After all, there's hundreds of denominations, countless differences in structure and doctrine and liturgy and music and songs and practice and look and name and on and on and on it goes. But then there's also confusion over what the church is or what it does. I mean, is membership or being part of a church, is it any different from Uh, a membership at the rec center or at the country club or Costco. What's the difference? And here's what we're going to emphasize this morning. Everything we need to know about the church is in the Bible. Everything we need to know about the church is in the Bible. Questions about what the church is, what it does, how it's organized, and why it exists are not unimportant questions. And they're not questions we leave for tradition to answer, or what's popular to answer, or what our personal preference is to answer. We go to the Bible for answers about the church. Commenting on these many questions of the church, Mark Dever commented, he says, the Bible certainly doesn't teach us everything, but neither does it teach us nothing. So the Bible doesn't teach us everything about the church down to its finest details, but it does teach us 
what God wants us to know about the church in either explicit or implicit ways. And so we must search out the scriptures, dig out the truths, and submit to them. So this morning, we're going to look at four questions about the church. And this is going to be a little bit more teachy probably than, than preachy, uh, but it'll be, it'll be a blessing to your heart, I trust. Four questions about the church. Number one, who is the local church? Who is the local church? No, I said, I said, I said who, not what. Now, we're going to go back to that word ecclesiastical. Now, the Greek word for the New Testament word we get church is ekklesia. And again, that's, you don't need to remember that Greek word, but you need to understand the idea. The idea of the word ekklesia, ek means out, and then kaleo means to call. So it's, it's the called out ones, or the assembly is another way to translate it. Jesus used the word church twice. He used it once in Matthew chapter 16 to refer to all believers um, that would exist at all time from Pentecost on and all places. Remember in Matthew chapter 16 where he tells Peter, I will build my church. You are Peter on, on this rock. I will build my church. He's referencing the church as a whole. But then he also refers, he uses the word church to refer to a local church in Matthew chapter 18. If you remember, that's, the, that's one of the great passages, one of the few passages on what we call church discipline. Remember what Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, you go to him just privately, and then you take a small group. And then he says, take it to the church. Now, obviously, he's not saying, you know, take, all, take somebody's sins and, you know, take it to every single person who's part of the church nationally, internationally, worldwide. There he's talking about the local church. This word church is used 114 times, and overwhelmingly it's used to describe a local assembly of believers. So we read about the church in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Rome, in Corinth, in Philippi, Thessalonica, Colossae, Ephesus. We have the seven churches in Revelation, and then numerous, numerous other occasions talking about the local church. The church began in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, and they would normally meet in houses. So maybe this, is, maybe this is our way of doing a house church. I'm coming into your home via some sort of technology they didn't have back then. We're doing in your and your homes. But they would normally meet in houses. Uh, official church buildings wouldn't come around until about the third century. So a couple hundred years after Jesus. Now to answer this question, who is the local church? I want to talk about membership. Membership. Because when you ask the question, who is the local church... The membership is the local church. The membership is the local church. It's not a church building, um, nor is it just a gathering of whoever. The local church, the membership is the local church. And I just want to talk very briefly on what is, what is church membership and why is it important. Um, there's no explicit, you're not going to turn anywhere in the Bible and it's going to say, nowhere in the New Testament, where it's going to say, go become a member of a local church. You're not going to find those words. But I think it's one of those things that was assumed by Jesus, by the apostles, uh, that, you, that a Christian would join a local church. And so there are a number of passages that imply uh, very intentionally that it's assumed that a Christian would join as a member of a local church. And I just want to note, this is, this is secondary to salvation. So if you happen to catch this online and, and you're, you're not a Christian and you're wondering what this whole thing about the church is, I want you to know that we here at Calvary Baptist Church, this is not a salvation issue. 
In order to be a Christian, it's not about being part of a church or attending church. To be a Christian is to place your faith in Jesus Christ. To realize that you're a sinner in rebellion against God, but that God in his grace and mercy provided a way for you to be saved. And that if you place your faith in the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, God promises that your sins will be forgiven and you'll have eternal life. That's the primary message. This is secondary. It has nothing to do with your salvation. But it is something that follows it. So, what is membership? And how do we know that we should, that, there, that it is important and that we should be members? Well, I think, number one, you have the example of the early church. And you have passages of scripture that are going to fly up there. We're not going to have time to go through all these. So I just trust that even though we may not turn to them together right now, that you'll go look them up. But Acts chapter 2 says, All who received his word, they were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So they were added. And then it says they devoted themselves. Well, who devoted themselves to this apostles' teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers? Those those who were added. There was an identifiable group of people. They, they were gathering together. You have another example. You can write this down. 1 Peter chapter 5, where uh, Paul talks about widows. And there is some official list of widows and how they could be cared for. But the example of the early church, the existence of church government. The existence of church government. Hebrews chapter 13. This is another passage that tells us the importance of church membership. Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verse 17, says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So here the writer of Hebrews is telling the people of the church to submit to the pastors or to the elders. There's two sides to this, and which is why I think this draws out the importance of church membership. The first question is, who are the leaders of the church going to give an account for? Who am I, who is Pastor Matt, who is Pastor Kyle going to give an account for on the last day? For, their past, for our pastoral stewardship. Are we going to give an account for all Christians that we encounter? Are we giving an account for all Christians everywhere? How do we know who we're going to give an account to? And that comes through church membership. But the flip side of that is on the people. Who are you, the people, supposed to submit to? If there is no, if there is no identifiable group of people, an official group of a local assembly meeting together, who are you to submit to? Are you to submit to a pastor in Texas, Matt Chandler down in Texas, or John MacArthur over in California? Are you to submit to Mark Dever on the East Coast? Kevin DeYoung up north? Who are you supposed to submit to? Well, you're supposed to submit to your leader of that local assembly. And then third, the third passage that gives us the importance of church membership is the exercise of church discipline, which we'll touch on in just a minute. The exercise of church discipline, uh, where Jesus says you're to remove them, f- f- move a, an unrepentant sinner from among you. Well, how can you remove someone who isn't part of you? And so we'll touch on that. But I want to give you a few observations on church membership before we move to the next question. A few observations on church membership. From the beginning, the church was an assembly of local, identifiable believers in Jesus Christ. 
Now, from the beginning as well, and we get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the local church was made up of many individuals, many different personalities, many different backgrounds, but they were so united, they were considered one body. Now, think about that. The goal of the gospel and the goal that Jesus Christ had when he built his church was unity. And this, that word's going to come up a number of times throughout this. Unity. That was the goal. Unity. It was not uniformity. Individualistic churches happen when the goal is uniformity. That is, we all wear the same uniform. We all, we all do the same thing. We all have the same likes. We all have the same personalities. We all have the same views on different things that maybe the Bible isn't clear about. Unity, on the other hand, is what the gospel brings. Unity with the brothers and sisters of the local congregation. It's a result of individuals recognizing their Lord and head as Jesus Christ. I was reading in my... Devotions just this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul says we should be eager to maintain the unity because he says there's one body, one Lord. We need to move on to the next question. So who is the local church? The membership is the local church. Now what does the local church do? What does the local church do? And again, we're going to go to the Bible. I think there's two primary things, and there's a lot of things that flow underneath it. We're not going to touch on everything. But number one, worship. Worship. This is the ultimate priority of the gospel. That God would have first place, that God would be glorified, that Jesus would have first place in our lives. This is, from, this is an original with me, Ligon Duncan, um, a Presbyterian uh, pastor, uh, said this. He said, when you're in your churches, you read the Bible, preach the Bible, sing the Bible, Pray the Bible, sing the Bible, I'll get in your order. Read the Bible, preach the Bible, pray the Bible, sing the Bible. The Bible is central. 1 Timothy 4-13, Paul would tell Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? He says, teaching and admonishing, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So one of the ways the local assembly keeps the word of God among them is that they sing the Bible, which is what we did even this morning. No, we didn't sing chapters and verses, but we sang songs that teach us the doctrines of the Bible. And then a word before we move on to what else the church does on the centrality of preaching when the church assembles. Because that was central, and it's been central throughout the history of the church. God gives life through his word, so when the flock comes together, the shepherd should feed them with the word of God. Which is why, you know, quite frankly, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a very trendy guy. Uh, we're not going to have trendy messages. I'm not going to preach a message for every single holiday that exists, uh, you know, because then, you know... You, you, Sing, you preach a sermon on National Balloon Day and, you know, this day and that day and all this stuff. And pretty soon you're trying to come up with all these topics. You know, we're going to preach through the Bible. I want you to be fed from the Word of God. Proper preaching will always teach from the Bible. It will teach about who God is and what God expects of mankind. And see, this is, this is why it's so uh, important because this is, this is what gets the gospel right. For, if I'm simply up here to be trendy... 
or to be popular or to be cool or to give you some heartfelt, you know, kind of nudges in the arms. If I'm here to be the, the, the Joel Osteen sort of shake the, shake the bottle and see what nice phrase comes out, that's not going to feed your soul. We need to get the gospel right. Because we aren't consumers, as I, as I asked this question last week, we, we aren't consumers needing an upgrade. We are those who, apart from God's saving grace, are under his wrath. And we're here to exalt the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's the third thing. Preaching should not be all you get. Preaching should not be all you get. If your walk with God consists only of hearing sermons at church, your faith will be weak. Which is why, this is why the Christian life happens outside of the local assembly. But we're going to keep moving. And as you can probably already tell, there's, we're going to cover a lot of information. We're just kind of flying over all this. But here's the second thing the church does. Observes the ordinances. These are the ultimate pictures of the gospel. So worship is the ultimate priority of the gospel, that God would be glorified, that Jesus would be glorified. The, the ordinances that Jesus gave to the church are the ultimate pictures of the gospel. They are reminders of the gospel, and they're reminders of the fellowship that we have with one another. So there's two ordinances. One is baptism. That's in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The word baptize in the Greek means to immerse. So this is a picture of a spiritual reality when a sinner places his or her faith in Jesus Christ. They are spirit-baptized in the sense that they are brought into the family of God. They've been united with Christ. And so baptism, what happens back here in the physical waters of baptism, is a picture of a sinner being identified in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is why we bring people back up, uh, because they're not only being identified in his death, but also his resurrection. Which is also why when we share the gospel, we tell the people that Jesus is alive. I heard a pastor say one time that if he baptized new believers the way some Christians preach the gospel, he'd have to keep them under and not ever let them back up. Because so many Christians, they preach Christ crucified, but they don't preach to people that Christ is alive. And so baptism is a public proclamation that I have been saved, that I have trusted in the crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. The other one is the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now this pictures the unity we have with God and one another. It's, it was, it's a supper, it's a meal, and we don't do a full-on meal when we celebrate it together, but that's kind of the picture. We're coming to a table, we're partaking of the elements, we're identified with Christ and his death, and so therefore we have peace with God and we have peace with one another as we all come to this table. So those are probably the two main ones. What does the local church do? We worship God and we observe the ordinances, but I think there's a couple more things here uh, that are important. Third is fellowship. Fellowship. And again, you have the, the, the passages of Scripture on there. Acts 2.42, we already referenced that. 1 Corinthians 12 is the passage about there being many members, yet one body. And, and he talks about the spiritual gifts that are given so that we can work together as a body and that there shouldn't be any arrogance or saying, man, the hand can't say I don't need the foot and the foot shouldn't be upset that it's not a hand and how those all things work together. But the Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. It comes from a word that means common. So here's the idea. The church is a common area. 
Now we have common areas like the local park. It's a, it's a common area for people. Or maybe out in a, in a hallway somewhere, a waiting room, it's, it's a common area. Well, that's the idea behind the church, the local assembly. So while the, the church is, the local assembly and the members of the church, that while, yes, the, the criteria is that you be a born-again believer, that you be a believer in Jesus Christ and you're baptized and you're joining the church, the idea there, there's no distinction, though. Yes, there's a distinction between whether you're saved or not saved. Yes, that's, that's a vitally important distinction. Otherwise, there will be no church. But this idea of the, the common area means that there wasn't, there wasn't slave or free, rich or poor. There was no male-female distinction. And one of the main ways fellowship reveals itself is the one another's of the New Testament. We're going gonna, gonna, gonna to hold a, a, a slide up here for you from visual theology to show you all the one another's that are found in the Bible. At least 20. And you see all the different ones there that are part of the church, the one another's. To love one another, encourage one another, greet one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, uh, bear in love with one another, live in peace, have compassion, and on and on and on it goes. But I want you to show you this next slide because you notice love is really big, and that's the reason why. Look how many times love one another is repeated in the New Testament. I think these two slides, these two ideas are meant to show us that we are supposed to live in community, community, common, community, communion. This one another community, whether it's the first slide or this love one another side, it can't happen if no one really knows the real you. Listen, it's easy to get cozy in a club because you talk about nothing, you don't really get down to the you know, nitty gritty, so to speak. The focus is on something else, but it's different to be part of a compelling gospel community because we get to experience these one another's, and the only way we get to do that is we have to let people know me. Somebody in this church needs to know me. We need to keep moving. The fourth thing a church does, before we move on to our last two questions, is discipline. Discipline. Again, you have the passages of scripture up there. We're not going to take the time to go through it, but we're going to notice three things here. The process, the purpose, and the point. The process from Matthew chapter 18, if you remember, if someone sins, you go to them privately, then you take a small group, and then you take it to the congregation of the church. And then after that, if the person doesn't repent, then it's removal. Why remove someone from the membership? Well, this person has demonstrated that he does not belong to Christ. He may say he belongs to Christ, but anyone who is living in unrepentant sin, who is not heeding the words and the admonition of of the pastors and of the congregation of the church, is saying, in essence, I don't belong to him. And so what Jesus is saying, if if he's acting like someone who doesn't belong to me, then treat him like someone who doesn't belong to me. And put him outside of the church. Church discipline is for those who do not care that they are sinning and causing harm to the testimony of the gospel. Which is why when we treat someone like they are an unbeliever outside the church, we don't don't necessarily shun them. We don't don't try to embarrass them. We don't give them the cold shoulder. We, We do it with tears. We do it with love. And we pray for them. But if you're someone who's caught in sin, the the first thing that happens is not church discipline. We don't just throw people out for 
any reason at all. Anybody who humbly confesses and repents of their sins and they're working by the power of the Holy Spirit and the hope of the gospel to live a new life, to look like Jesus, we welcome that. We want that. We're all part of that. I'm part of that. I'm someone who needs to humbly confess and repent of sins and constantly be working by the power of the Spirit to be more like Jesus. The purpose of church discipline is the health of the church and restoration of the sinning brother. I want to get to the point here a little bit and talk about maybe some practical application of this. There should be no one within the church with whom you are not on speaking terms. There should be no one within the church with whom you are not on speaking terms because church discipline is assuming that if somebody has done something wrong to you, the idea is you're going to go to them privately, you to them privately to talk to them. Secondly, there should be no offense taken when, no, when offense was not meant to be given. You kind of have, have to have a thick skin when you're in a church. There's a lot of people. But there should be no offense taken when there wasn't any offense that was meant to be given. I remember somebody once telling me that, that it seems like everybody was just pushing their buttons. And my thought, I can't remember if I responded this way or not. I hope not. But my, my thought was, you have too many buttons to push. Everybody's constantly pushing your buttons because every little thing is, 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 is tweaking you and making you upset and causing you to be irritated. Number three, there should be no desire or attempt to ever embarrass anyone, settle the score, or calibrate someone else to your own self-righteous preferences. Number four, there should be no preference given to anyone who is wealthy or influential. Anyone who is caught in any sin must be called on to repent or be removed from church membership, and whether you give a lot, whether you're influential, it does not matter. Let's keep moving. To the big one. Number three, how is the local church governed? Number one, Christ is the supreme authority. This is Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Christ is the supreme authority. He's the one who gifts his church to do the ministry that they're in. So we've got to be in tune with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit might, might have us to do a work here and doing things and gifted in a certain way that wouldn't work over in Paris or even on the other side of the state. This is why I think God leaves out so many of the details, because he's going to use his spirit and his gifting to work in our church. Number two, how's the local church governed? We have two offices, pastors and deacons. What is a pastor? I want to show you this verse and walk you through this verse of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. He says, so I exhort the elders, that's where we get pres- that's Greek word presbyteros. You can hear the word presbytery in there. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd, poimen, that's the word for shepherd or feed. Shepherd the flock of God that is, and that's where we get our word pastor, by the way, the word poimen or shepherd, that's, that's what the word pastor means. The flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. The Greek word is episkopos. You get the word episcopalian from that. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, three terms for pastor that all refer to the same office. Presbyteros. Literally means he's, he's an older one. Let's keep going. Number two, he's 
Poimen, he's the pastor. He's feeding. He's shepherding the flock. And then episkopos, literally, that word literally means overseer. So very simply, for presbyteros, older one, or mature, he's, he's an example to the flock. He nourishes the flock. And he watches over the flock. That's what the pastor is supposed to do. The pastor's authority is a real authority, but only as he submits to Christ. It is not an authority that's to be used with force or intimidation, but grounded in the word and love, humility, service, and gentleness. And the church is to gladly submit to those in pastoral leadership. Second, how is the church governed? You have Christ the head, you have pastors. The second office the scripture gives us is deacons. And both of these offices you can find in 1, Peter, or 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 with the qualifications. So deacons, the origin, many say, is most likely Acts chapter 6. We don't know for sure, but it seems that that was when the church, the local, the gathered assembly, chose men to serve in the church. So there again, you have another kind of bent towards the importance of church membership. This office was subordinate to the office of the pastor, but it was not inferior. And it's interesting, you know, throughout Scripture, we have kind of a lot that talks about pastors, what they're supposed to do. We have uh, epistles written to, written to pastors and Timothy and Titus. But when it comes to deacons, we really don't get too much as to what they do. Like I said, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, we get their qualifications and their character and what they should be like, but not much of what they do. But it's safe to conclude that they were the, now listen to this, the spiritual caregivers of the physical needs of the church. They were the, this is a spiritual office addressing physical needs. The deacons should see to physical needs. They should strive for unity. They should support the pastors. But they are the spiritual caregivers of the physical needs of the church. Number four, I want to talk a little bit about congregationalism. There's basically three types of church government. You have Episcopalian, that's where like one person is the authority over a number of churches. Roman Catholic Church would be a prime example of that, Anglican churches. Then you have Presbyterian. Uh, Presbyterian uh, government is where the, the, it's an elder rule, where there's a board of elders, pastors, and they are making every decision they're ruling. And then you have Congregationalism, which is what I believe Scripture lends most faithfully to. Uh, Congregationalism, it's elder-led, deacon-served congregationalism. Final authority rests with the church, even though it doesn't make every decision. And so there's a lot of things, once again, being a member of the church, the, the responsibilities of the local congregation, they ensure that a qualified minister of the word is preaching to them. Acts chapter 14, verse 23 uh, the, the, the congregation is responsible for matters of membership, for affirming a person's testimony in Jesus Christ, for receiving them into membership, and even their, they, the final responsibility of dismissing them from membership, which is why at our, at our members' meetings we bring before you those who are coming in and those who are going out. That's a very important thing. They're responsible for the faithful stewardship of the gifts entrusted to it. So as we bring in all these gifts, again, which is why we, we come to you with a budget. And we talk about these things. How are we going to be faithful stewards? The local congregation is responsible for doing the work of the ministry. 
and ensuring the fidelity and the spread of the gospel. That's on the congregation. Interesting, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he did not call out the pastor for the false gospel that came into the church. He called out the church, the, the congregation, the members, that they would allow this to come in. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says the gospel rang out from the church. He didn't say it rang out from the pastor. He said it rang out from the church. Acts eleven twenty two 22 is the church that sent out missionaries. The church said, Barnabas, you go. The gospel rang out from the church. The entrance of the false gospel that entered the church in Galatia was because the members were irresponsible. And we could, obviously we could deduce from that the pastor was totally irresponsible. Let's look at our final question as this fire hydrant of information continues. This will be very brief. What is the purpose of the local church? And I hope you've seen some of that as we've gone through this. I know it's a lot. Number one, it's to exalt God. This is the ultimate purpose of the church. Even in the Old Testament, we see God, when he was with his people Israel, he chose a set group of identifiable people that he was going to use to spread his glory and spread his fame among all the nations. He redeemed them so that his glory would be seen. Church must be God-centered. Centered. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Secondly, what's the purpose of the local church? To edify believers. The church is to encourage and strengthen individual believers in their relationship with Jesus, which is what comes when we sing, when we read, when we pray, when we preach the Bible, when we interact with one another. And number three, the purpose of the local church is to evangelize the lost. Now, I want to tell you that the gospel does not spread the best with me up here preaching. I love to preach because this, this, is, my, this is a way for me to preach the gospel. But the gospel spreads best when the local assembly spreads out. And you spread out naturally. Tomorrow, this local assembly is going to spread out all over the place to go to work. And that's how the gospel spreads. But not only here locally, but we should have a vision and a plan to see God's glory cherished among the nations. And this is Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. That's a lot of stuff, and it's time to close, and we are doing that now. But I want to give you four invitations as kind of an kind of application and conclusion to this message on the church. Four invitations. The first is an invitation to be saved. Whether or not your name is on our church membership list, the invitation still goes out. You're not going to be saved by joining a church. You may be on the membership list of this church and not be saved. But an invitation for you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, to do that, to call on his name and be saved. The second is an invitation to be baptized. This is one of the ordinances. This is one of the ways we publicly, publicly proclaim that, yes, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. Maybe you are a Christian and you've never, you've never obeyed the next command of Jesus after being saved, and that is to be baptized. Love to talk with you about that. An invitation to join the church. Maybe you're on the fence, you're not a member, you're an attender, but you didn't really know why you should join or if it's important. If you're a believer, 
you've been baptized, the next logical step from the New Testament is that they were saved, they baptized, and they joined the church. Would you be willing to do what is so obvious in the early church? Submit yourself to pastoral leadership. Covenant yourself with the other Christians here at Calvary Baptist Church. Commit to the ministry here. And then finally, my final invitation is an invitation to repent. Do you know what the last words of Jesus to the church were? It wasn't the Great Commission. It was his words to the seven churches we find in the book of Revelation where he called on them to repent. Is there any selfishness and pride in you? Is there any bitterness and resentment in your heart towards other members or other people of this church? Towards anybody who's a deacon or in leadership or a Sunday school teacher? Is there any resistance in your heart to Christ or to the leadership of this church? Is there any attitude of laziness in your heart towards the gospel ministry? Invite you to repent. An invitation to be saved, an invitation to be baptized, an invitation to join the church, and for those of you who are members, an invitation to repent. This is God's word about the church, and I trust it was a blessing to you. Let's close in prayer. Our Father God, we just spent a long time giving a big overview of such an important thing, a thing that you talked about. We didn't get time to turn to all the passages of Scripture, but we, Lord, we, we, we noted them places in your word. So I pray that the people watching, they'd be like the Bereans, help them to go search this stuff out. Lord, I pray that you would save those who aren't saved. Pray that those who uh, need to be baptized, that they would, they would come and get that taken care of. Those who would like to join the church, Lord, we have a membership class coming up, so we look forward to bringing in new members. And then, Lord, for the members of this church, if there's any need to repent, and Lord, there's a need to repent in my own heart, because I, I'm a, I can honestly say that until recently, I wasn't so sure of the importance of the church. I wasn't so sure about everything it did and was supposed to do and why it did it. It matters. Lord, I pray that you would give us your grace and help. I pray this in Jesus' name.